Well, our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible or if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 976. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Um, the black books that are bottom of the pew in front of you. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 10. And if you wouldn't mind standing me, standing me, joining me in standing in honor of God's word. Okay. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and this is the story for every single one of us um, Christians. This is our story. This is, this is not just true for people that lived 2,000 years ago. This is true for us as well, which is wonderful. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so you can take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Isaiah, and we come to the end of chapter 42, the beginning of, or the most of chapter 43 that we're going to look at this morning. And you can find that on page 603 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. So here we are in the middle of this obscure big, hard-to-understand, Old Testament prophet book. Um, and, you know, some of you might periodically think this, or maybe you think this this morning. Um, you know, we're just coming here, going through some churchy, weekly motions. I mean, I just can't even believe that we spend like 45 minutes studying this obscure, ancient text where we dig into the meaning of words and, I mean, idioms and expressions. Like, come on. Like, I don't... So glad I'm done with school. Like I don't need to. Why can't sermons be more like you know grocery store magazine covers with you know five ways to 
do this, maybe a bit more practical, immediately accessible, more contemporary. I mean, this, when was this written? Like 2,700 years ago? Five ways to beat depression, the power of positive thinking. Wouldn't that be more practical? Wouldn't that be more helpful? Well, just one little encouragement here on the front end. In case that's what you're thinking, maybe not many of you are thinking that. I don't know. But imagine finding a secret document with the keys to the universe and untold treasure and power and keys to universal human flourishing. I know, it sounds a little cliche, but just go with me for the sake of the point. Wouldn't it make so much sense to just become like Indiana Jones? Because you want to unlock the treasure, right? Well, that's what we're doing. It's just that the treasure here in Isaiah and in this book in general is way more valuable than anything Indiana Jones ever set his sights on. So let's dive in to the treasure store of Isaiah. We'll start in verse 18. Isaiah 42, 18. The first half of the book, verses, or chapters 1 to 39, is just a bunch of bad news. God's people, they're supposed to be God's people, but they're totally rebellious, like, like an insolent teenager with their father. And so he speaks to them, speaks to them, speaks to them through Isaiah and other prophets, and they just have their fingers in their ears, and God's going to have to judge them to wake them up. And then there's this turn in chapter 40, which is actually good news ahead of when it actually came. They were so deaf that they didn't want to hear what God said. But he says, you know, one of these days in the future, I'm just not going to give up on you. And he says, comfort, comfort, oh my people. Someday you're going to actually listen. And when you're ready for it, it'll be here. I will be here. So Isaiah writes of the time when they will be carted off into captivity in Babylon and they're going to finally be so ready to return to their God. And he says, comfort, comfort. So he, he speaks the good news ahead of them even being ready for it. So here we are. And this is the good news that was intended for those people that would be held captive. And even though that situation, in some senses, is very different from our own, there's lots of ways in which it's very much the same. And this directly addresses who we are and where we are in our lives. So here we go. Verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? Okay, now if you were here last week, this might seem a little strange because at the beginning of chapter 42, look back at it. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He's this wonderful person. And we obviously realize that that servant is fulfilled, whoever this person is, is finally unfolded later on. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the servant, the perfect servant of God. So is this the same servant? Who is blind but my servant? No, this isn't the same servant. But you can see how it would be shocking as you're reading along in light of the glorious character of the servant that we looked at last week. 
wait a second, it's a little disoriented to turn the corner here and find that the servant is deaf and, and blind and dull. Well, here's the point. This is Israel, God's people. They were supposed to be God's servant. They were supposed to be his witnesses, his light to the world. Instead, the witnesses are blind and deaf. Kind of hard to be a witness if you're blind and deaf, right? Listen to uh, Barry Webb's a great summary of, of what's going on here. In short, the servant in this passage seems to be a figure who embodies all that Israel ought to be but is not. That's the beginning of chapter 42. He is God's perfect servant. That's Jesus, obviously. The servant it refers to is not just an ideal they should aspire to. Israel should not just aspire to be like the servant, but a real person who's God's answer to their weakness and failure, to their blindness and their deafness. So the point is this. The servant, Israel, needed, needed served by the true servant, Jesus, in order to become the servant once again. So the witness needed to be made new with new eyes and new ears. Okay? And that's what Jesus came, came to do. In fact, this is reminiscent of how Isaiah himself is the paradigm for the people of God. Remember what happened in chapter 6? He had to realize and experience how sinful he was before he would realize that he needed atonement. You remember the vision in the temple? And woe is me, I'm an Man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. And then atonement is made for him, and then he's ready to be the witness. Here am I, send me. Right? So the very thing that happened to Isaiah needs to happen to all of the people of God. They need to see God's glory and holiness. They need to see their sinfulness, and they need atonement. And then they'll be empowered to be the witness that they were supposed to be in the first place. So verse 20, Israel, this is still kind of the bad news, the, the situation they're in. Israel, he sees many things, my servant, my blind, deaf servant, sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So what happens is their sin and idolatry blinded them, deafened them. It's the same thing with us. You know, you become like what you admire. So in Psalm 115, it says, Their idols are silver and gold. They have eyes but do not see. Idols. Ears but do not hear. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So we become like what we admire. If we worship and serve created things, it dulls us and makes us spiritually blind and deaf. Which is why, as Isaiah is preaching, to revive, to awaken his, God's people, God has him say things like, haven't you heard? Don't you know? In other words, wake up. So verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Okay, God had done this so many times in history where he had given his law to his people, revealing his nature, his glory, and he did it in order that his people would, would embody it and extend that good law throughout the earth. 
So they were to be a light to the nations, right? So if, if they loved God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and loved their neighbor as themselves, which is the summary of the law, then they would have been this winsomely attractive light to the nations. But they obviously failed in that. Look at verse 22. Here's what is the result of their rebellion. This is a people plundered and looted. So God had acted on behalf of his people. Remember when he brought them out of Egypt and gave them the law? They plundered the Egyptians. Now his people are plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Especially if they're deaf. Who among you will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looters and Israel to the plunderers? How did this all happen? Who did this? Was it not the Lord? This isn't just accidents of history. This is judgment that happened. Was it not the Lord who gave us up? Against whom, listen, Isaiah doesn't stand up on a perch, his kind of moral high ground, and look down at everybody just kind of denouncing them. He says, against whom we, he includes himself, we have sinned in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So the whole point is, they brought it on themselves, and they needed to acknowledge it. They needed, just like Isaiah, to say, woe is me, I am undone. I deserve the judgment. This is their desperate condition. This is the judgment that they deserved, and so God did judge them. Look at verse 25, and these are the the big picture movements of history with God's people. So, verse 25, so he poured on him, his servant, Israel, unfaithful servant, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he still didn't understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So even though Jerusalem was raised to the ground, burned up, and everyone was carted off to exile, they still didn't get it. The judgment, as fiery as it was, still didn't wake Israel up from her spiritual sleep. Their deepest problem, see here, this is so important here as far as the interpretation of history and reality here, their deepest problem was not the fact that they were in exile in Babylon. The deepest problem was their spiritual blindness and dullness. You see that? Who gave up Jacob to the looter Israel of the plunders? It was the Lord because of their sin. So if they're in Babylon right now, What they need ultimately is not just to get out of their bad circumstances. What they need is to realize what got them into those circumstances in the first place. They need to repent of their sin. And it's the same for us. We so often don't understand what our problem is. We point out all around us and think that that's the biggest problem when we need to own what's inside of us. Listen to Ray Ortland. He said, we're not very good at paying attention. Even when the discipline of God sets us on fire, we don't necessarily feel it enough to take it to heart. We think God is unfeeling. Do you remember 4027? Why has he forgotten me? Why, why, why isn't he considering my right? That's what we do, naturally, in the heat of discipline, in the fire. 
But he is not the problem, Ortland says. The problem is that our lives bear little relation to his purpose. That's why Judah went into national exile. That's why churches today go into institutional exile. That's why we need reformation as individuals and as churches. So with with God's judgment aimed at them there in verse 25, with such stubborn rebellion characterizing them, they should fear. And you know what? This is where we all are before we see our need of Christ. This is the hardening, blinding, deafening result of sin. It can even come in after we become Christians. We can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we can need to be shaken awake. See, this isn't just indifferent bad circumstances. There are times when there is culpable dullness and its effects. It's the disciplinary effects that God brings. And so we can't say, well, I, I, I didn't know. I couldn't help myself. No, no, it's, it's really our fault. We need to own it. And we need to repent, just like Isaiah did in chapter 6. But all that said, either way, whether it's we've never really owned it or we've kind of started to wander and we're blaming God rather than looking inside. Either way, the remedy is the same. We need divine intervention. Okay, so you've got this bad situation where God's servant who's supposed to be his light to the nations is instead deafblind. So we need divine intervention and that's exactly what God provides as we shift to chapter 43. So look at chapter 43 here. But now, and this is the the good news, it's really good. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So where does the text go? But now, where does the text go? Okay, but now you're finally starting to come around. Or, but now you've at least done thus and such. No. It says, but now I have. But now I have. God speaking. It's just like the fighter verse. Did any of you look at the context of Romans 8.1? Right before Romans 8.1 is Romans 7, 24 and 25, where Paul says, wretched man that I am. See, I, I do what I don't want to do. Ah, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he just says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Ah, who will deliver me? God will. There is therefore now, not because of anything in me, but because of everything in him, no condemnation. So even though they were such a mess, deaf-blind servant, you turn the quarter into, into chapter 43, and it's, but now it's just like Ephesians 2, the scripture reading. Dead in sins, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, he poured out his mercy and made us alive together with Christ. So here's the point. God's gracious choosing and redemption is more decisive than our past guilt and blindness. Remember last week, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Richard Sibbs said that. 
So, in fact, go back up to 42.18 again. Do you see this? Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Is that like a cruel joke? Hear you deaf, look you blind. Is he like taunting them or something, making fun of them? No, not at all. It's actually the power of the gospel. It's like saying to people who are spiritually dead in their sins, you must be born again. His commands are his enablings. The power is not in us. The power is in the word. So hear you deaf, look you blind. By my very word, I'm going to remake your eyes and remake your ears. It's this divine summons. The word of God comes and awakens and gives life just like with Lazarus, right? Come forth. Hear you blind. I'm sorry, you deaf. See you blind. So isn't this beautiful that the divine summons is more decisive than our guilt and our blindness and our deafness? So if you're a Christian, we're no longer the blind idolaters that we once were. We're now the ones that the living God has made his own. He's called us each by name. He knows our name. And he's redeemed us. Okay, do you see it there? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Kinsman redeemer. He, he basically says, I'm going to, I'm going to make you my family. I'm going to take your neediness on myself, and we're going to be next of kin. We're going to be family. I mean, that's just so beautifully ultimately displayed in the incarnation. God takes on human flesh to make us his family, to reconcile us to himself so that God can be our father. He's redeemed us. He made our neediness his problem, and he took it on himself to set us free. So there's all kinds of wonderful implications and promises that are ours now. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So what trials, what fiery trials are you going through right now? What's overwhelming you right now? Well, if you have been redeemed and called by name and you belong to God, then when you pass through the waters, he's going to be with you just like he was with the Israelites through the Red Sea or through the rivers, just like he was with his people through the Jordan as he parted it and the people entered into the promised land. These things will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. The flame shall not consume you. I mean, look at the contrast. Look back at 42.25. This is what we deserve. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the, the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he didn't take it to heart. So they deserve the wrath of God, the fiery wrath of God. We deserve it. But now, because of this redemption, because of this grace, the fire will not consume us. Why? Why won't the fire consume us? What changed the situation? Well, the servant, actually. In the context of the wider context here, it's this servant, the perfect servant of early on in chapter 42, and that we read of in Isaiah 53. 
He was consumed by the fire of God's wrath so that the fire of trials would only purify us rather than consume us. So fiery trials for us, if we've been redeemed from our biggest problem, it will end up just refining our faith and making us stronger and more pure. So this is the kind of thing that should free us from fear. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Okay, we are so often oriented to really small and temporary fears. Do you ever think about that? And yet they're so big in our own hearts and minds. See, if we, if we actually were oriented to fear God and the judgment that we deserve, and then we really know, we really feel, we really experience the fact that if I've been delivered from the wrath to come, my biggest problem is totally taken care of, then all the other fears kind of resolve and melt away. They get shrunk down to size. They're like flea bites in comparison to the ultimate fear. So that's why rehearsing the gospel and getting our souls in line with what is really big and what is really small is so important if we're going to gain some traction in fighting our fears. So let's say you tend to fear financial trouble, financial demise maybe. Or let's say you fear pain and suffering and death. Or let's say you fear loneliness. Or let's say you fear what so-and-so might think of you, and you're just kind of consumed by those thoughts. Or let's say you fear what might happen in the future. Do you see how the gospel, I've redeemed you, you're mine, puts all of those fears in perspective? The gospel's dealt with your biggest fear, your biggest problem, financial demise. Okay, you might go through some hard times, but you have the riches of his mercy for all eternity. And you have a father who knows what you need before you ask. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or wear. You see? Fear of pain and suffering and death. Okay, that's scary, but to live as Christ and to die is gain. I'm safe forever. Nothing can snatch me out of his hand. Fearing loneliness, I have one who will never leave or forsake me. Fear what so-and-so might think of you. Well, what about what God thinks of me? I deserve him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're mine. I've redeemed you. So you know what? Some people... It's just going to, people are so fickle. I'm just so glad I have the smile of God. Let's say you fear what might happen in the future and we spin. What if, what if, what if, what? What if God's in control and He holds the future and He holds me? All because of His grace. So the gospel addresses all of those things and puts them in perspective. But sadly, if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus, then the fire will consume you, okay? Later on in Isaiah 47, 14, just listen. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. So again, it's a call to run to Christ, the Redeemer, so that we are rescued and safe. So we need to remember the gospel, who it is that guarantees all these things. That's exactly where the text goes next. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
So he makes these promises when you walk through the, the waters, you, I'll be with you. Walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Well, how do I know? Well, I'm the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He wants to assure our hearts. He wants us to know how big he is, the one who holds us in his hand, who makes these promises. If he is this great and big, the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, there is no one like him, the only Savior, then that starts to cut down the, the fears in the midst of trials down to size. So he goes on and gives more reason to assure our hearts before him and to diffuse and calm our fears. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. What does that mean? Well, remember when God redeemed and delivered his people from Egypt. He also judged the Egyptians, right? Same time. Deliverance and judgment came at the same time. So the Egyptians actually paid the price for the freedom of God's people. And God made them pay it. Or fast forward to, you know, the time that Isaiah is talking about with Babylon. God did this to Babylon by raising up Cyrus, the king of Persia, to deliver his people. So Babylon was overtaken. King Cyrus was handed this massive kingdom given in exchange for his people. Because Cyrus said, go ahead, I want to help you get back to Jerusalem. So there's a pattern here, but don't stop there. The pattern actually climaxes at the cross. Okay, so if you keep reading in Isaiah, you get to Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So God didn't just say, I'll give Egypt in exchange for my people, or I'll give the kingdoms of this world to my servant Cyrus, Cyrus, so that he'll issue a decree and they can return to Jerusalem. And he didn't just wistfully say, oh, I'd give the world for them. I'd give the world for you. The whole world isn't enough. It's, not, it's nothing compared to what he did give. He didn't just make the nations pay. He paid the ransom with the most precious and costly price imaginable. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Listen to the infinitely valuable ransom that was paid. 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why? If, if we are deaf-blind in our natural state, just rebels with our fingers in our ears and blinded because we're just living like earthworms. Like, if that's the, what we deserve, why in the world would he lavish such infinitely precious grace on us? Why would he do that? Well, look at verse 4. It's almost too good to be true. I'm going to do all these things. Don't fear. I'll be with you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. That is God speaking to his covenant people. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is a lot easier for me to help other people believe than it is for me to believe. So put your name in here. So, Michelle, you are 
precious and honored in God's eyes, and he loves you. We kind of resist that a little bit. It's just too, it's almost too good to be true. Lori, you are precious and honored, and God loves you. What's, what, what happens in your heart? Like we, I think there's a little resistance that gets kicked up sometimes rather than just drinking that in. Surely you are precious in God's sight and honored, and he loves you. Do you believe that? Isn't that good news? Rob, you are precious in God's sight and honored, and he loves you. Rebecca, you've got your head down, so I'm just going to pick on you. She's <laughs> laughing. You are precious in God's sight and honored, and he loves you. We need to preach this to our soul. We need to believe this. This is what casts out all fear. Because it starts off with fear not. You know 1 John 4.18, don't you? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love, but the punishment is, is all gone. Jesus took it all. He gave his son in exchange for us to redeem us. I mean, what is fear but, I learned this from David Paulson. what is fear but desire turned on its head? Our desires are ordered by our loves. Why do you fear death? Because you want desire to live. You love life. Right? Well, what if Psalm 63.3 is true? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do, you. do you see how it frees you from fear? If his love is even better than life, that's what I want. So, he, the, the things that we most deeply want, the gospel provides those. And when we really receive it, it frees us from our fears. Look at verse 5. Fear not again, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you, which, again, original context, return from exile. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So for those in exile in Babylon, this was a promise of deliverance, so return from exile. But it has a further horizon of a fulfillment as the gospel goes out to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and people are gathered in from every tongue and tribe and nation. God is calling out his people that he's redeemed from every tongue and tribe and nation. And then there's a final gathering at the end 
fact, flip over to Mark 13, and you'll see this final fulfillment of this gathering. Mark 13, 26. Jesus returns, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, before we move on, I want you to see two more things in verses 1 to 7. First off, it has to do with identity and security and your name. What is your name? Okay, well, there's two Two little phrases that are really powerful and you need to see them together. Look first in verse 1. He knows your name. You are not some anonymous number. So if you're a Christian and you have been called out and called to God, he's, he's summoned you by his gospel call and you've responded by his grace and you belong to him, I have called you by name. I know your name. God knows your name. He called you by your name. It's not just this this kind of impersonal general call and then, you know, I hope somebody comes. It's Brady Wharton, you're mine. Not mine, you're Brett's. But (laughs) God says that to you. And you came. Just like Lazarus out of the grave. He knows our name. But then verse 7, he's talking about everyone who is called by my name. So he knows our name, like my name. But then he says, I call you by my name. (laughs) Are you tracking with this? Sorry. The whole point is it's his name. It's like inheriting the family name. It's kind of like getting a new last name. You're in God's family. We're called by his name. So he knows our name, and then we get called by his name. Does that make sense? How sweet is that? (laughs) He gives you his name because you're part of his family, and he knows your name. It's personal and intimate and individual. And then one other thing I want you to see and savor here in verses 1 to 7 is look at the pattern with fear not. You see how fear not is repeated twice? First in verse 1, then again in verse 5. We'll look at what follows. If we are going to wield the sword of the word in the wilderness of temptation where we get anxious and fearful very often, how do you battle those fears? 43.1, fear not, I have redeemed you. 43.5, fear not, I'm with you. You might just want to underline that and remember those two things. (laughs) I mean, how about that for like the one-two punch against fear? Fear not, for I've redeemed you. Fear not, I'm with you. I mean, what more do we want? Do you see what I'm saying? This is like, boom, this is really strong grace, industrial-grade grace for our fears and our anxiety. Now, the text takes, yes, gets tracking with that? (laughs) Is that encouraging? It's good. Okay, now the text takes another surprising turn. And first the surprise was the servant. Wait a second, I thought the servant was wonderful and perfect, and then he turns out to be deafblind. Well, that's because it was us. Now there's this really strange courtroom scene. Look at 
verses 8 to 13. This is point number three. Bring out the people who are blind yet have, e- yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. So what's going on? Here's this courtroom scene. First, the blind and the deaf are called in. That's Israel, remember? God's servant that was deafblind, his people. And then all the nations, which would be all the people who are worshiping other gods, at least at that time. So imagine all the best minds, all the experts in the talking heads brought into the courtroom, and then verse 9 continues, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Go ahead. God is on trial here, and you people who worship the gods of the nations, you come in and go ahead and bring your witnesses. Let them hear and say it. It is true. So who knows how to interpret history? That's what's going on. Who's God? Who's who's in charge? But wait, God's calling somebody to the stand. Who's God going to call to the stand? Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen. Wait a second. He's calling these blind deaf ones to to be his witnesses. Be like making Helen Keller your key witness of something that happened and was only perceptible by sight and sound. Cornelius Plantiga writes this about this. He says, Israel is in court to answer the question of who is God and who is in control, but she's not in any shape to testify. Witnesses are supposed to have sharp eyes and keen ears. You want an eyewitness who can actually see God's justice and not get it mixed up with revenge. You want an ear witness who can actually hear the compassion in God's voice and not get it mixed up with sentimentality. Witnesses are supposed to be sharp, but Israel has blinded herself by her sin and deafened herself by her iniquity. That's how sin works, you know. It dulls everything in us. Turn your back on God often enough, and pretty soon you're blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Crank up the mega bass in your car stereo and blow the birds out of the trees, and pretty soon you can't hear the still small voice of one who speaks to you with the enthusiasm of a lover. Israel's in no shape to testify on the biggest question of all. She's supposed to testify for God, but she can't do it. She's too blind, she's too deaf, she's too depressed, and she's way too defeated. You can't have a prisoner claim that God has set her free. How credible is that? You can't have a plundered nation testify that she's God's precious gem. Who's going to believe that message? So again, imagine the courtroom scene. Let's contemporize it a little bit here. Imagine Vladimir Putin. How do you say her name? Um, Angela Merkel or something. You know, the German. Okay. Barack Obama. Xi Jinping. Bill Gates. Tim Cook. Janet Yellen. Sheryl Sandberg. David Cameron. Larry Page. Oprah. Beyonce. Ellen DeGeneres. Christopher Hitchens. Stephen Hawking. King Salman of Saudi. All the world's intelligentsia. The smart ones, the culture shapers, all the wealthy and powerful and influential in this world who give no thought to God or relegate him to the periphery. They're all in the courtroom. And then imagine some humble redneck Christians. And not just redneck, but those who don't live out their Christianity all that consistently. They've been blameworthy hypocrites at times. They've embarrassed the cause of Christ, and everyone is gathered into the courtroom. It looks like it's going to be a big win for team secularism. God's on trial. The question is posed. The issue in court is, who can explain what's happened? Why is Israel in captivity in Babylon? 
Why do these things happen in history? And the intelligentsia would say, you know, well, certainly this military battle and its outcome, these political moves, economic factors, and leadership decisions, and blah, blah, blah. So telling history in a completely man-centered way. Godless historical facts. Always factoring God out. Why? Because of blindness and deafness to reality. Right? Then God steps in and says, this is why these things happened. And then he looks to his blind and deaf witnesses and says, tell them. And Israel would explain, despite her halting speech, the redneck Christians, even you and I, telling the truth despite who we are. And guess what? Case closed. Because the real issue is God is God, and he is the Lord of history. The issue is certainly not that his witnesses are so wonderfully insightful. The decisive factor is that the truth is on the side of the deafblind servant, even though she is struggling to see it and hear it and believe it. The reality of God is why this case is open and shut, not because of any convincing like Sherlock Holmesness in the witnesses. Now notice the purpose of the case and its verdict. Why are they brought in like this? You are my witnesses that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. In other words, this deliverance couldn't have come by the hand of any other God. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. So do you see the purpose there? You're my witnesses, not just that the nations may know. I want you to know. I want you to really know. It's like doubting Thomas at the end of John's gospel. If he's going to be an effective witness, he needed to witness the resurrected Christ and be convinced. God is saying, I want to convince you first, you first, of my love for you and my redeeming grace before I expect you to convince, try to convince anybody else. Again, it's just like Isaiah 6. He needed to see God in his holiness. He needed to see his own need. He needed to feel the purifying power of atonement. And then he was ready to say, okay, here I am, send me. The same thing we need to go through. This is just a picture of 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're nothing. It's the treasure that's everything. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So, Wonderfully, oddly enough, their blindness and deafness actually magnifies God's glory all the more. His grace is all the more evident. It's, it's all the clearer that it's his power. It's not them. They're just clay pots. The treasure is with God. So there is no God but the Lord. There's no Savior, no other Savior. Therefore, verse 13, also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Should be incredibly encouraging to those who are in exile. No one can resist the Lord if it's his will to redeem you and lead you home. No enemy can prevail from, getting you home, from him getting you home. And that's exactly where he's taking us. 
Look at uh, verses 14 to 21 that he's doing this new thing. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. Okay, remember that language of giving peoples in exchange for his people? The Babylonians were so feared. And here's what God did them through Cyrus when he raised up Cyrus. Verse 14 is basically saying like how pathetic the mighty Babylonians are now. Look at them, they're just departing like fugitives, just running away. Verse 15, I'm the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He just heaps title upon title. And these aren't new. They're titles that have rich history, God's track record, and how He has poured out His grace and faithfulness on behalf of His people throughout the ages. And they're supposed to call that to mind so that they trust Him. And then He gets more concrete regarding where he wants their minds to go. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What does that remind you of? Yeah, Exodus. That's what happened at the Red Sea. And so God is calling that to mind. This is huge. It's, it was everything to the Israelites. It was the paradigm for deliverance in the Old Testament. The Exodus and the Passover were central in their identity. But notice the present tenses in verses 16 and 17. Who makes a way, who brings forth chariot and horse. In other words, it's, it's just what he does. It's characteristic of him. He's not just talking about one event. He's saying this is the kind of God we're dealing with here. So he reminds them of the mighty deliverance of Exodus 15, and then surprisingly he says, you know what, forget about that. <laughs> it's nothing. Look at verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. If you thought that redemption and deliverance was great, you haven't seen anything yet. Verse 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Again, it might be hard for us to... Uh, to really get our minds around this, but imagine yourself in Babylon, in exile, and restoration is, is um, promised to you. That might not be the good news you might think it would be. So listen to, to Barry Webb. He says, it's perhaps hard for us to, to appreciate fully what a frightening prospect this journey must have been to those who faced it. First, it was across unknown territory. Most of those who were young and fit enough to travel would have been born in exile. And although Babylon was not their true home, it would have been the only place they knew. The wilderness represented a break with even that limited security. Secondly, Jerusalem was a long way off, between five and 900 miles away, depending on the route. The returnees would expect to be traveling for at least four months through harsh terrain in which they would be vulnerable not only to exhaustion but also to attack by bandits. The wilderness meant hardship and danger, and what could they expect on arrival? Not hearth and home and plenty, but a devastated land and the arduous task of rebuilding their lives from scratch. In a sense, the wilderness was just as frightening a thing as Babylon. And you know what? Being redeemed from slavery to sin is awesome and wonderful, but this life is still filled with Trials, fiery trials, overwhelming things. So the only way that as we move forward, we're going to fear not. 
is if we remember that he's redeemed us, he's with us, and he can create a way where it doesn't even seem like there is one. Look at how the text continues. It says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Verse 20. I'm sorry, the end of verse 19. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. So where there is no way, God can and will make a way. He can create one where there is not one. And he does it all in order to to give drink to his chosen people, the people whom he formed for himself, that they might declare his praise. And so we return. In other words, I'm going to be with you the whole way through the wilderness of this life, no matter what the trials are. So we return to chapter 43, verses 1 to 7 again. In conclusion, how do we overcome our fear and follow God where he leads us? How do we become his faithful witnesses, a light to the nations? Fear not, I have redeemed you. Fear not, I am with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you, my sons and my daughters, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Let's pray, and then we're going to praise our great Redeemer. Lord, your redemption is so great and glorious, and I pray that we would see it. So help us to look, even though so often we are blind to your glory. Help us to hear it, even though we oftentimes are deaf to your voice. And speak those sweet words that we are precious in your sight and honored and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.